The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him. And she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon toward the Sea of of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one. But the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The Gospel of the Lord. O Lord, may your word only be spoken, and may your word only be heard. In the name of Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. Some of you may have already had the chance to open your Boston Globe this morning. I'm told that there is in it a list with the title of something like, Ten Bible Verses I Hate Most. Kitty McGraw pointed this out to me. I haven't had a chance to look at the globe yet. But I'd have to say, if I were to make such a list, the gospel passage that we heard this morning would be, I'd say, in the top five. More uncomfortable this passage makes me feel than just about any other verses that we hear from Jesus in the New Testament. More uncomfortable than passages where he talks about money, where he talks about the demands of discipleship, where he talks about justice, where he talks about heaven and hell. More than any of those, this passage really makes me feel uncomfortable. And I think that's because, as far as I can tell, it's the only passage where Jesus is gratuitously mean. Now, this encounter between Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman is recorded in two places. First, in the Gospel of Mark, which we heard this morning, and also in the Gospel of Matthew. Mark's account is a little bit shorter, 
Matthew expands the episode uh, in a couple of ways. He adds more dialogue between Jesus and the woman. He includes the disciples in the scene for a little comic relief. And he also emphasizes the Jewishness of Jesus. But the essentials of these two stories are the same. Now, there have been attempts to explain away the harshness of this passage. And I think these are more successful when they're looking at the gospel passage uh, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, where the disciples provide an audience for the encounter. And in these ways of softening the harshness, we're asked to imagine the facial expressions and the tones of voice of both Jesus and the woman, and to imagine that they're engaged in a teaching session to benefit the disciples. The disciples, and that is to say also us, as we witness this encounter, are being guided into a broader understanding of the reach of Jesus' mission. According to this way of thinking, Jesus and the woman already understand this. They're just playing this little game in order to bring the disciples up to speed. If you ask me, this asks us to imagine a lot a lot that is not present in the text. Other commentators try to soften the passage by telling us that the word in Greek for dog that Jesus uses is actually the diminutive form of the word dog. It's like puppy or lapdog or dogette, if you will. But let's face it, with all due respect to the dog lovers among us, a dog is a dog, and it's still an insult. Now, I think, though, if we persist in trying to soften the hard edges of this passage, we will, in fact, not receive the full good news that actually is present in this passage. And I offer three reasons why. We want to pay attention to the hardness and not soften it. First, this passage emphasizes the humanity, the humanity of Jesus. The Anglican tradition has always embraced the paradoxical nature of Jesus as expressed in our creeds and also in the gospel accounts. He is fully divine as well as fully, fully human. It is a rich combination, this human and divine, surely not neat and tidy, but full of power, I would say, to reveal and to nurture the divine image that resides at the very heart of each one of us and who we are. Elsewhere we see in Mark the divine Jesus stilling storms, walking on water, feeding the multitudes, being transfigured, healing and casting out demons. All things, I would suggest, that we can do in our own ways as bearers of the divine image. But here in this passage, we see someone who is more obviously human, more obviously like one of us. He's tired. Perhaps unsure of where his ministry is to go next, 
Maybe he's trying to recover from the conflict that has clearly begun. He tries to escape to a pagan place. Tyre was notorious as a place of pagan worship. He tries to escape to a pagan place where he figures a nice Jewish boy will be left alone. You recall that last week he solidifies his outlaw status when he really lights in to the Pharisees for their abuse of the purity laws. Into this escape, if you will, or retreat or vacation comes this needy, needy woman. Some of you may have seen the movie, What About Bob? Maybe some of you have seen it. I see some thumbs up in the back. Richard Dreyfuss plays a popular psychiatrist who has taken on a hopeless and clingy patient played by Bill Murray. Dreyfuss imagines that he has escaped on summer vacation in a beautiful house by a lake. But lo and behold, Bill Murray shows up and clings on to him in his vacation, trying to continue the treatment that they'd begun together, much to Dreyfus's dismay and, and developing insanity as the movie unfolds. Or who among us as parents, having slipped away into a quiet room after the children are in bed, desperate for a moment of peace and quiet after a long day, which of us parents in that situation hasn't muttered under our breath an epithet When the door creaks open and a little voice says, Daddy, my tummy hurts. But Jesus remains connected and engaged with this woman. And thanks to her persistence and his openness, he finds himself actualizing in his own life the teaching that we heard him give last week. You recall that last week Jesus declares all foods are clean. This week, he declares all people are open to receive and are worthy to receive the healing touch of God. Even an unaccompanied Gentile woman. Three big strikes against her in the Jewish tradition of the time. So first, This passage reminds us that Jesus is human, or has a human side to him. That's good. Second, the picture of Jesus that we get in this passage also tells us about the way the church in the first century grappled and struggled with its sense of mission, who it was, what was it supposed to do. We have to remember that the early church community crafted these gospel accounts at least a generation after Jesus' death and resurrection. Their collective memories and experiences of Jesus would have taken into account the current experiences and questions that they had. As the Jesus movement grew in numbers and strength and spread out from Jerusalem into all the world, so to speak, it was forced to ask itself, Who was this good news for? Or for whom was this good news intended? Just for Jews? For Gentiles? Jews and Gentiles? Did Gentiles have to become Jews first? And if so, what kinds of Jewish practices did they have to assume? Dietary laws? Circumcision? 
All these questions are present in, that, in the church of that time. And I think we see those kinds of questions in microcosm in Jesus' reaction and Jesus' encounter with, with the Syrophoenician woman. And the end result of the struggle is, of course, that Jesus throws open the gates of the community to all. Now, we in the church have not been strangers to these kinds of controversies in our own generation. For example, what is the status of gays and lesbians and other sexual minorities to be in the church? What about women? What kind of authority does the Bible have for us? Among other questions. Now I gather that probably many of us in this place and in the Episcopal Church at large have already made up our minds about these questions. And yet these issues continue to stir up serious tensions in our relationship with the worldwide Anglican communion, which we are a part of. These tensions are not gone. So this passage encapsulates the way the church struggles with its mission. I think it's a good thing to remember that as well. Finally, we have a sense in this passage of how change happens for those who resist change and for those who persist in seeking change. For me, and perhaps for others, the 35th anniversary of the ordination of the first women to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church quietly slipped past me in July. The so-called irregular, irregular because bishops had laid hands on them, bishops in the apostolic succession, so the ordinations were good, so to speak, but they hadn't been yet approved by the General Convention. These ordinations took place on July 29, 1974, in Philadelphia. General Convention approved those ordinations two, day, uh, two years later, in 1976. I believe our own Ivan Kaufman was present at the irregular ordinations, and the stole that he wore that day is in our vesting room. Now, I don't know how much in particular, I don't know much in particular about that struggle. I don't know the details of the players and uh, the different dynamics in the church that were going on. But I imagine there must have been some of the same elements as are present in this passage today. Sincere and principled resistance based on a particular understanding of the tradition, as well as pride and maybe some fear, maybe a lot of fear. And on the other side, great pain and hurt, as well as tremendous wit and humor and dogged faithfulness. For those with power, change is often painful, grievous even. For most of us, profound change only happens when we are pushed, and usually pushed very 
hard in directions we would just as soon not go in. For those seeking a share of the power, change often feels incremental, bit by bit, too small bit by bit. And it comes from a variety of strategies, humor, humility, courage, faithfulness. So I think this passage tells us a number of things. First, God can handle our humanity. We can give ourselves the freedom and give God the respect of bringing our whole selves to the feet of Jesus and asking for what we want. God can handle it. Second, God can handle the messiness of God's church. We remain human even as we also remain God's chosen vessels and instruments for bringing holiness and justice and compassion to the earth, the whole earth. And finally, our malleability, our teachableness, if you will, our openness to the power of the Spirit can surely be held up alongside the model of our Savior who apparently allows his mind to be changed. And for help in recognizing the places where we ourselves have desire for deep change and for an example of how to bring those before God, we can find no better teacher than the Syrophoenician woman. Thanks be to God. Amen.